May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. On last week's episode, we heard about the up-to-date assessments and diagnoses and managements of her fibromyalgia and related problems. The assessment of her condition and conclusions were that she likely had a deep-seated infection in her tonsils or in her teeth, and they attempted to alleviate that through offering the option of tonsillectomies and teeth extractions. We heard that up until the mid-1800s, the idea was there were these four humors in the body that were out of balance. With the advent of understanding of germ theory and infections and anesthesia, options for treatment included abscess removal and tonsillectomies, teeth extractions for abscess teeth, and surgical management of medical problems. However, this didn't seem like a likely solution because it was tried earlier and she wasn't convinced. Many doctors concluded that this was just all psychological or a nervous condition, which also was very frustrating for Margaret. On this week's episode, we will continue as we hear more about her fascinating story of an author who, despite her brilliance, suffered greatly. And this week, we will hear about how a chance meeting that was completely unexpected led to the discovery of her creative mind and the novel that her creative mind had created with Gone with the Wind. If this is your first episode, I am so glad to have you here and invite you to come back for many more. I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I am a pediatrician, an internal medicine physician, and a diplomat of the Board of Clinical Lipidology and Lifestyle Medicine. I've been a doctor for over 26 years. My goal is to help weave the best of medical management with the best of lifestyle medicine. I also am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. If you'd like a deeper dive into fibromyalgia, please take a look at that as the links are provided in the show notes. Remember that while I am a doctor, I am not your doctor. The information presented in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be and should not be interpreted as medical advice for any medical condition and any individual. It also is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. The content presented is provided as a starting point in your research and a helpful guide when discussing your individual circumstances with your trusted medical doctors. All listeners are 
strongly urged to seek medical attention and guidance regarding any symptoms or health concerns. Margaret remembers her friends asking, Why are you writing a book, Peggy? How strange you've never said anything about it. Why didn't you give it to the head of the publishing company? Margaret responded, I hadn't because it was so lousy. I was ashamed of it. Really, I wouldn't take you for the type who would write a successful book. You know, you don't take life seriously enough to be a novelist. And you've never had it refused by a publisher? How strange. But Peggy, I think you are wasting your time. You really aren't that type. I suddenly got so mad that I began to laugh and had to stop the car because I laughed so hard. And that confirms their opinion of my lack of seriousness. When I got home, I was still so mad that I grabbed up what manuscript I could lay my hands on, forgetting the ones that I had left under the bed, under the pot, and in the closet. They rushed down to the hotel and caught the publisher, Harold Lantham, as he was about to catch the train. My idea was that if I could brag that the very best publisher had refused me. And no longer had I done this than Harold Latham was out of town. I was appalled by my temper and acting on impulse and giving him the stuff when it was in such sloppy shape and without so many chapters. She quickly regretted her impulsive actions and sent a telegram to the publisher the next day after giving it to him, saying, Send it back. I've changed my mind. The publisher had a cursory reading, which convinced him of its excellence. He responded with a very positive note. She responded, I have felt that something was lacking in me that other authors, real and fancied, possess, that passion of belief in the excellent quality of their work. I believe so passionately that they have no qualms about gathering in groups and reading each other's stuff. I am more than a little frightened when you write of taking it to New York for careful reading. I fear your manuscript readers will have a dreadfully difficult time in making heads or tails of the stuff. What do you think? If after you read more you find that you can get some continuity out of the story, then take it on to New York with my appreciation and thanks. But if on further reading you find it too scrambled to be intelligible, send it back to me. I will remove the extra versions and what chapters are missing in a brief summary of what is contained in those missing chapters. Part of her criticism was typical Old South self-deprecation, but her self-criticism went very much beyond conventional modesty. She closed with still more self-effacement. Before the novice posted this letter, she received the second from the editor. It glowed with still warmer praise. To affirm his complete seriousness, the publisher suggested he returned to the Georgia capital to discuss her novel. His train to New York passed through the city in any case, and he had played with the idea of a quick revisit even after he received her letter. Margaret took the note as warmest flattery. She responded in kind. His kindness, as she called it, overwhelmed her. I hope you make a special trip to Atlanta, even if it is just to say your stuff won't do. I thank you again for your encouraging words. In considering the kind words that Harold Latham had said, she went on to say something so remarkable. I'm sure they'll have more healing effect 
on my back than all the braces, electrical treatments, and operations the doctors devise. I find it interesting, insightful, and eye-opening how his kind words eased her back and body pain. What has been the impact of words and language on you if you have fibromyalgia, your loved one, or your patients who have fibromyalgia? I was hoping you might be able to share with me your experiences by sending an email, whether it's good or not so good, on the impact these words have had on your symptoms. The editor kept the manuscript, but Mitchell's sense of the novel's lousiness, as she termed it, persisted. Over the next three months, her anxiety increased and her horror at having let anyone read the real thing. In early July, she wrote the publisher again, confessing all her real and imagined sins against the craft of novel writing. When I look back and give it to you, I shudder at what I unloaded on you and marvel at my own thoughtlessness. In the shape I was in, I don't see how you made heads or tails of it. Perhaps you didn't. But that is just what I am doing because I am very anxious to finish the thing and begin rewriting it. At present, I am out of my spinal brace. I can sit up at the typewriter for an hour or so at time for the first time in seven months. I am one of those clumsy or unlucky people who are always being run into by drunken drivers, sat on by horses, struck playfully with bottles by guests. Or I get influenza or return of arthritis. I am able to work and am very anxious to work. However, knowing my past record, I realize that it's only a matter of time before I have an arm in a sling or my skull fractured again. With me, writing is sandwiched in between broken bones and x-rays, and as I am all in one piece at present, it looks like flying in the face of providence not to take advantage of it. So could I have my manuscript back, please? The publisher and editor never replied to the author's panicky request. Margaret's haste in getting the manuscript together also made her miss other chapters. The discovery caused new panic. She fretted. I can't find them in my files, and I really lack the courage to dig in a three-foot pile of revisions and discards in the closet to see if they are mislaid there. However, I have rescued a draft of those chapters, an incomplete one, from the top of the pile. I am sending it by this mail, she wrote to the editor, at the risk of further confusing you and your readers. The editor described the manuscript given to him by Margaret as the sloppiest manuscript he had ever handled in 30 years of editorial work. The fastidious New Englander reached for the first envelope. Still, he turned the pages with increasing fascination as a train cut through the foggy night towards South Carolina. He described one of her characters as vital and unforgettable. A number of your scenes were made firmly fastened in my mind. As you have gathered, I am taking a very keen interest in your book and hope you will not insist on its return before our advisors are through with it. It is a book of tremendous importance and significance, he told his bosses. We shall make a grave mistake if we do not immediately take it. Mitchell's pleas for the novel's return actually increased the urgency of the publisher's arguments. Why? 
He assumed her request meant other people were after her, and he pressed the company for a quick decision, or they would lose the prize. Harold shared with the publishing company's advisors his assessment. There are surprisingly few loose ends, and the number of times when emotions are stirred from one way or another is surprising. I am sure that this is not only a good book, but will be a bestseller. The company wired a contract for the book. Mitchell responded to the contract by asking to pass the smelling salts. In the fall of 1935, however, she had little time to worry about the legal issues because she entered a period of near-crazy labor and created an acceptable manuscript. By her standard, this entailed the most strenuous, mind-breaking, straining, and back-breaking efforts. Her physical condition exaggerated her impatience. She had worn herself out in her labors. The work of preparing the manuscript between September and February took its toll. Within a year of the first, she had a second car wreck in the middle of her heaviest work. Manuscript revision complicated those aches and pains and added others. Her scalp had broken out in those boils, as she called them. Her fingers developed painful calluses, which physicians removed surgically. The last two weeks of manuscript revision finally sent her to bed. The old ailment of abdominal hesions, as the doctors and Margaret had called them, were acting up again. And the doctor wanted to operate, she said. Her back was agonizing her as well, sitting up for hours at a time, day after day, over a period of weeks, typing, editing the manuscript, handling heavy reference books, and everything else entailed with her book was about the worst possible thing she could have done. It was a marvel that she held out as long as she did. She did hold out, however, both finishing the manuscript itself and correcting all the proofs. What she went through is now what we would call a fibromyalgia flare-up. Not everyone who is listening with fibromyalgia has had these identical symptoms she experienced, but many of you have had those. Let's review. She developed boils. Boils are classically thought of as skin infections caused by bacteria, typically a bacteria called Staph aureus, and they lead to kind of pockets of pus. It is unlikely that she had spontaneously developed infections, but rather likely she had some stress-related reaction manifesting as rashes. There are several skin conditions where intense levels of stress can elicit rashes. One example on a mild level is skin flushing in many people when they are nervous. I have observed inflammatory acne-like nodular lesions in some people with fibromyalgia occurring in patients that were somewhat mysterious to the dermatologist, but felt to have stress as an eliciting component. I suspect Margaret had a similar rash. There is another condition called mast cell activation syndrome, where the role of the central nervous system in response to stress appears to play a role, leading to intestinal symptoms, including severe pain and diarrhea, along with symptoms that share much in common with fibromyalgia. More research needs to be done to help further understand 
what this mast cell activation syndrome is. It has been termed an idiopathic disorder, which means the cause is unknown. The understanding of mast cell activation syndrome is in its infancy. I hope to do a podcast sometime in the future to discuss this more in detail. From a histological and developmental analysis, skin and intestines share common origins. It is no surprise there are likely manifestations of the brain responding to stress in ways besides pain giving other alarm signals. Margaret also had abdominal adhesions flaring up again. As discussed on earlier podcasts, these would now be best understood as irritable bowel flare-ups. Her back also flared up. Her drive to finish the book created a tug-of-war between doing something she enjoyed and had a strong drive to finish versus the stress of being sedentary and cognitive overdrive demanded to complete her epic novel. Doing something good led to a flare-up. Have you had a similar experience where you dove into something cognitively challenging and exciting, leading to worsening fibromyalgia? Understanding she had untreated ADHD gives a better perspective of what she went through. It has been said, as I noted on the prior podcast, that it can take Twice as much time to get half as much done in those with untreated ADHD. This was taxing on her, especially when she had such a demanding task. Her euphoria of later finishing the book prompted some atypical behavior for her. She gave two public speeches during this time. That was impressive because above all else, she hated speaking in public. A high school student later interviewed her and captured how she felt nicely. People think if you can paint, write, or dance on your toes, you can make a speech. But this wasn't true for me because it terrified me to give a speech. Invariably, she associated public speaking with physical trauma. I cannot make talks and when forced into it, become ill. Moreover, I get sick every time I think of it. So greatly, I do not want to talk. I do not see why people want to make me sick and miserable in this matter. The fact remains that it takes days and weeks for me to struggle with writing something to say. Days and weeks of being sick and wishing an auto would run over me before the fatal moment and days afterward. Generally in bed, getting over it, she said. I was not cut out to make speeches or public appearances. I get the jitters just being in crowds. I have made three public appearances which made me feel so ill that I was sick in bed. At the same time, however, she spoke very, very well. As her brother insisted, once on her feet, she could no more avoid entertaining people than she could stop breathing. She reported having a hard time connecting her thoughts while giving a speech. Before one speech, she said she couldn't think of anything to say. Life was a dreadful moment. Don't ask me what I said. I haven't much idea. I only know I said five words when the crowd began to bellow, which so disconcerted me that I couldn't get a word out for a moment. And from then on, it was a riot. I don't know what was funny, 
but they laughed till they wept, and two ladies fell off their chairs. She recalled later sharing the story to Harold Latham that her novel would not sell because it only contained two g-dams and one curse word. At this the crowd erupted. They asked what the one dirty word was. She also went on to say how the book would not sell because the heroine was in love with another woman's husband for years and would never do anything about it. This is where people fell to the floor. She relayed to a friend how her glands would act up before speeches, a likely reference to fibromyalgia pain attributed to infection in her tonsils. When you have a pain, you want to rationally explain it. By the time Gone with the Wind's formal release on June 30, 1936, more people had read their reviews than ever read most novels. Hundreds of advanced copies had floated from hand to hand across the country. It had become the liveliest topic of literary conversation for weeks. And so, like Uncle Tom's Cabin three generations before, the novel burst upon American culture and provided a new set of images, metaphors, and ways of seeing the world. I hope you've enjoyed hearing more of Margaret's story. I hope that you draw a connection to her experience and feel that you are not the only one going through this. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit the like or subscribe button, share it with others, and if you're interested, take a look at the book, both available online through Audible or available in print. Until next week, go Team Vibro.